Welcome to the Boonville Worship Center Sermon Podcast. So Lord, we thank you, God, for your word and opportunity, God, to look at it, God, to reverence it, Lord, to expound upon it, God, to look into the the mystery and the light of who you are. God, I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to receive the revelation from you and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so we are on week four of five um, on understanding the beauty and mystery of the Trinity. So here for session four, we're talking about the Trinity and the gospel. And hopefully, if I have time, I still want to cover some uh, in more at more depth Jesus's pre-existence. So that parts of that was in last week's notes, and I reattached them to this week and added a few, um, I think a quote or two and a couple, uh, one or two verses. Um, so we will hopefully be able to touch on that. So first, I'm going to open up with a few few more quotes. Every class, I think, I have opened up with a few quotes. Um, So this first quote on the Trinity and the Gospel, it says, uh, Salvation is Trinitarian. God the Father is Savior. God the Son is Savior. God the Holy Spirit is Savior. In order for us to understand the salvation that is ours, we must understand it through the threefold lens of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. To see our salvation only through one member of the Godhead is to have a mere one-dimensional understanding of salvation. We must step back and see the larger spectrum of the grace of God that has been lavished upon us, that has come flowing down from heaven from all three persons of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is essential to our understanding the doctrine of salvation. And that is from a man named Stephen Lawson. Uh, So a second quote, the doctrine of the Trinity is basic to the Christian faith. It is no exaggeration to assert that the whole of Christianity stands or falls with the Trinity. And that is by a theologian named Ralph Kuyper. And a third quote, the Trinity is the basis of the gospel, and the gospel is the declaration of the Trinity in action. And that is a quote by a famous theologian, J.I. Packer. So the the first question I want to address is one that I haven't heard anyone bring up, but it is a relevant question to the topic. And that is, do I need to understand the Trinity to be saved? What do you think? Any guesses? Yes, no? Do I need to understand the Trinity to be saved? I found a excellent uh, short video by John Piper addressing this very question, and I want to give a quote from that video. He says, authentic saving faith is of such a nature that when false views of Christ's deity and false views of Christ's humanity are taught in the church, that authentic saving faith smells a rat and will at least have a big question mark and go to the scriptures and search out the truth and believe it. So essentially he's saying that if we have authentic faith, authentic faith is connected to a obviously an authentic gospel. That doesn't mean that we all have to be theologians, but it does mean there's, there are essentials that we have to um, believe by faith in order to be saved. But it's not an academic understanding of the Trinity that saves us, yes? But but a repentant heart and a living faith in Jesus as the Son of God. So as we learn more about who God is and what he has done and the message he carried, it's important that we do not deny the truth that we see explicitly in Scripture. It's not perfection of doctrine that saves us, At the same time, an an active rejection of biblical truth can lead us astray. So there is that tension, right? It is not perfect doctrine will not save you. 
you could be the most down to a T, you know, dot your I's, cross your T's, perfect in theology or what you think is right, and not be saved if, we're not, if, we, if we aren't having that repentant leap of faith in our heart toward Jesus as our Savior. So it is not right theology that saves us, but at the same time, wrong theology can derail us. Wrong theology can lead us astray. So um, I want to read just a few verses related to this. Mark 1, 14 through 15, it says, Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. So how many of you know Jesus preaching the gospel? You are going to get the most accurate, clear declaration of the gospel because it's Jesus himself proclaiming it. And this is what he said. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So that is where we get that understanding that repentance and belief in the gospel is the core fundamental of our transition into the family of God. So, and then we also see, but the question then is, what exactly is the gospel? What is that message, that good news that Jesus, that Jesus is proclaiming? So 1 John 4, um, 9 it says, by this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. So here we see a beginning exposition of what is this good news. God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. And then 1 John 4, 14 through 15, it says, we have seen and testify that the father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So now we see that God is a Father, and He has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. And then verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So here we see that we must confess that Jesus is the Son of God. We are not simply confessing that Jesus was good. We aren't simply confessing that Jesus is powerful. We aren't simply confessing that the miracles that he did was, was uh, you know, spectacular. We have to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. And then 1 John 5, verse 10 through 11. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. So specifically, we're talking about the testimony of God that's given through his son and about his son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. So again, this is the message that God the Father is giving us eternal life, and that eternal life can only be uh, received through Christ his son. So 1 John 5:13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So we're not just believing that there is this all-powerful God up in the sky that wants to save us. We're believing in the name of the son of God. In other words, he has specific identity. So and then it gets even more clear in 1 John 4:2. By this you know that the Spirit of God, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So here we see a transition of belief that if the, if the Holy Spirit is in us and prompting our confessions of faith, there needs to be this confession that Christ, the Son of God, that he came in the flesh from God. In other words, we're, we're acknowledging the deity of Christ, but we're also not denying the humanity of Christ. There, there were errors and heresies in church history that have denied, where men have denied the humanity of Christ. So here we see it's key. We have to believe that Jesus came from God, but also that he came in the flesh. And then John 3, 35 through 36 the Father loves the Son 
and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. And here we see it expounded a little bit more. Number one, the Father loves the Son. So if you, if you notice all of this language related to the bare-bone understanding of the gospel, the entire language is surrounded around this revelation that God is a father and God has a son. God is a father and he has a son. And then with language like this, the father loves the son. So all of this language is Trinitarian. All of this language is showing that the nature of God's being has, has this uh, diversity of personality. That God is a father and he has a son and there's actual love flowing from the father to the son. And not just love flowing from the father to the son, but love that, that, that manifests itself in the father giving all things to Christ. So again, this is very Trinitarian. The Father is loving the Son. This would be weird if we had to reinterpret all of these passages to say that Jesus loves Jesus. Right? So if, if, if I believe that there's, no, that there's no Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that they're all the same, not just the same being, but the same person then you'd have to reinterpret all of these verses to say, Jesus sent Jesus, Jesus loves Jesus, Jesus was giving something to Jesus. And that's not what it says. So to be faithful to the text, we believe in the revelation that it's releasing, that Jesus is the Son of God. So Jesus is not the Father, the Father is not the Son. And then there's this other element that says, that we have to believe in the Son to have eternal life, but we also, it says, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. So here we see this element of obedience. I, I am not saved through obedience, but my faith has to flesh itself out in obeying the God that I serve. If I say that I belong to God and I never obey him, then the Bible says that that's hypocrisy and it won't lead to salvation. So the Trinity in salvation. So we're going to look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. So Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is what's called a doxology. Have any of you heard that term? Doxology. A doxology is a, you could call it a passionate hymn. It's liturgy that glorifies God. Paul is not making a theological debate about God's nature. He is in unity with the larger body of believers, glorying or glorifying the, the triune God who saves us. So Paul can't expound on salvation without expounding on the Trinity. Paul lays out how each person of the Godhead participates in our salvation. They are unified in their salvation work, and yet distinct in their unique role. So here's, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see the Father saving us. We're going to see the Son saving us. We're going to see the Holy Spirit saving us. And yet, there is distinction in role. So Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, uh, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. So these verses, verse 3 through 6, it is primarily talking about the work of the Father. So front and center is the revelation that God is a Father and God has a Son. This God that is a Father is worthy of blessing and worship and adoration. So again, think of this. This is a, 
This is a hymn. This is a passionate hymn that would be, you know, believed and sung or chanted or whatever uh, w- among the body of believers. And it's opening with this exhortation of worship, this exaltation of, of, of God. It's saying, blessed be the God and Father. In other words, we worship you, God the Father, and not, not just this abstract God the Father, but you are God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's this revelation of the Father and the Son. So the Father chose to bless us who deserve no blessing, to be blessed in Christ. We are not blessed in the Father. It, it is not the Son who is doing the choosing either. They have distinct roles. So this is what you're going to see if, if you read over dozens upon dozens upon dozens of verses throughout the New Testament that talk about salvation. You will always see the same roles and the same distinction of roles between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You will never see Jesus doing the, 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 the work of the Father, meaning being that, uh, that one who is choosing, that one who is building the plan, that one who is sending. It's always the Father sending, the Father who's, who's, who, ha- who has the, uh, the, the, he's choosing the will, the will to release his son into the world. So we see this distinction of role. So it's the Father that's choosing. It's not the Son choosing for us to be in the Father. It's the Father choosing us in Christ. And as I stated in a prior class, the choosing happens when? It happens before the foundation of the world. So the Father chose that we would be in Christ before creation. The Father chose that we would be in Christ before creation. So this shows Christ's preexistence. Jesus existed before he took on an earthly body in Mary's womb and was in fellowship with the Father before creation. Because it says in verse 4, and just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So the purpose of the Father in blessing us and choosing us in Christ is for us to be able, why? So why is the Father blessing us and choosing us to be in Christ? It's to be able to be holy and blameless before him, the Father. In other words, he wants closeness to us. He wants us to be with him where he is. The Father wants to father us. He wants us to know him. So this is that motivation. Why is the Father choosing? Before creation even starts, the Father is choosing to send the Son into the world, and he is choosing us to be found in Christ. And it says why? It says that we would be holy and blameless before him. So even before you ever sinned, even before your parents ever sinned, before their parents and their parents and the hundred and the, all of the generations before you, before all of them sinned, God the Father chose you in love. He predestined you to adoption as sons. Unto what? So that we would be before him. So this is, this is that Trinitarian love of the Father involving his son before creation, wanting to bring us into fellowship with himself, even though he knows that the world is going to stray, that we're all going to fall short of the glory, that none of us are going to be able to do enough or show enough or reach high enough to redeem ourselves. He chose to redeem us before creation ever started. So in love, he, the Father, predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. He chose beforehand that his ultimate aim was to adopt us, to redeem us, to bring us close to himself, and that he would accomplish this through Jesus Christ. Again, there's very distinct roles. We can't flip the names and say that the Son sent the Father because the Son did not send the Father. So again, you read dozens upon dozens of verses. It will never say the Son sent the Father to redeem us. It always says the Father sent the Son. So all of this 
is in accordance to the kind intention of his will. In other words, God is a father, and in love and in a, in a, according to the kind intention of his will, he is choosing us and saving us in Christ. The Father is kind and full of love and chooses us. Is that good news? The Father is kind, he is full of love, and he has chosen us to be in him for the express purpose of being close to him. He wants to be known. This is a relational being that wants to be known. He wants to, from, from before creation, he chose to reach out his hand through Christ and adopt us so that we can be with him. So then in verse 7 through 12 of Ephesians 1, we see God the Son, Jesus, saving us. So the focus switches. Verse 7, it says, In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. Whose blood? Jesus. So how do we know it's talking about Jesus? It's talking about blood. Does the Father have a physical being? Does it have a physical frame? Does the Father have blood? No. Does the Holy Spirit have a physical frame? Does the Holy Spirit have blood? No. So in Jesus, we have redemption. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Talking about Jesus. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will. According to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. So God the Father does not have a body. He has never had a body. God the Holy Spirit has never had a body. Redemption has come through Jesus and through his blood. So here we see Jesus saving us. And then in verse uh, 13 through 14, we see the Holy Spirit. So Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, it says, In him you also... After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. So here we see the Holy Spirit is the one who is sealing us in Christ. How many of you know that's a good thing? I want to be marked. I want God to keep an eye on me, to mark me so that he doesn't make a mistake, put me in the wrong place. Right? We want God to mark us with a seal of the Holy Spirit saying, I belong to God. So here we see the whole picture coming together. God, the Father, chooses us. He sets the plan. He sends God the Son, Jesus, to become a man, live a sinless life, die for our sins, and the Holy Spirit seals us for our final and complete redemption when we are resurrected. The Father sends Jesus. Jesus dies for us, and the Holy Spirit seals us in Christ. So you can't flip the terms. The Spirit didn't send the Father to die. Jesus didn't send the Holy Spirit to die. Here, again, there's, there, there's clarity and distinction within the persons of the Trinity. The Father is always the one sending the Son. Jesus is always the one dying. And the Holy Spirit is the one who seals us. So without the Trinity, we have no redemption. The Father is the author of our redemption. Jesus accomplished our redemption. And the Holy Spirit applies that redemption. So how many of you know, when we say yes to Christ and we're saved, we are in him, we are marked by the Holy Spirit, we still need 
God to continue to work on our soul and deliver us from the soulish habits of sin, from the corruption that is still within our will. So the Holy Spirit begins that work of applying what Jesus did on the cross and teaching us, empowering us, the grace of God empowering us to continually walk in accordance with the faith that we profess. So the Trinity in Jesus' resurrection, this is the mystery of the Trinity. We have a distinction in role and person, and yet perfection in unity. They are one in purpose, unified in essence, and yet distinct from each other. So God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Acts 2, 22 through 24 says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up, again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So here it's saying God the Father working with Jesus on the earth, performing miracles through Jesus. And then it says again, God the Father, he is the one with the predetermined plan. He is the one with the foreknowledge predetermining that Jesus would die on the cross. And then yet we have the free will of man raging against Jesus, nailing him to a cross. And then we have God the Father. It says he raised him up again. So we have God the Father raising him from the dead. And 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10, for they themselves report about us what, a kind, what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So here we say, we see in verse 10, his son, Jesus, coming down from heaven. So again, distinction in person and role. The Father is not, or the Father is the one sending the Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, talking about the Father. So the Father again is raising Jesus from the dead. But then we see, if you're familiar, you may also recognize these verses about Jesus saying that he raised himself from the dead. So John 2, 19, it says, Jesus answered to them, destroy this temple. In three days, I will raise it up. So I don't know anyone that contests that this verse is talking about Jesus raising himself from the dead. And this gets even clearer in John 10, 17 through 18. It says, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So undeniably, the I in this passage is Jesus, and he is saying that he is the one that has authority to lay down his life, and he is the one that has authority to take it up. So Jesus himself, he raised himself from the dead. And then we see God the Holy Spirit raising Jesus from the dead. So Romans 8, 11 on page 5. But if the Spirit of Him, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So again, the words couldn't be clearer. We're talking about the Holy Spirit and it says, the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. So God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus says he had power and the choice to raise himself from the dead. And here we see the Holy Spirit raising Jesus from the dead. And then, so we see this divine unity of God. 
God is never opposed. God is never acting in contradiction or in opposition to himself. The Father is never opposing the Son. The Son is never opposing the Holy Spirit. They have unity and purpose. And then we also see the Holy Spirit facilitates Jesus offering his perfect blood as atonement to the Father. So Hebrews 9.14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, meaning the Father, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So how did Jesus offer the blood of his own blood to the Father? It says it was through the eternal Spirit. So the Holy Spirit was involved in Jesus presenting his own perfect, perfect shed blood to the Father as atonement for our sins. So here again, we see the Trinity in action. It is not the Holy Spirit receiving the Father's blood. It is not the Father receiving the Holy Spirit's blood. It's not the Father presenting the Spirit's blood to Jesus. Again, we see consistency in role. We see the Holy Spirit presenting the blood of Jesus to the Father. So this part, um, this next part, Jesus' preexistence and separate identity from the Father. So I wanted to address this one more time and give it more depth to have it be fresh in our minds because as we understand Jesus' preexistence and his distinction from the Father, this is the defining truth that either places us within Protestant Orthodox Christian belief or places us outside of that. We know that Jesus existed prior to the incarnation, his, holy, his earthly birth, and we know that he interacted with the Father before creation, showing his separate and divine personhood. This can be seen and demonstrated from lots of scriptures, and I won't include all of them, but I will include many of them here. So I'm going to read a couple uh, more quotes. So this first quote, it says, Christ from eternity has been a spiritual God, equal with God, equal in authority, equal in power, in every respect equal with God. Now, though equal with God, and of the very substance of God, very God of very God, as the old Puritans used to say, he empties himself, gives up for the time his equality, and makes himself incarnate in a human being. He does not cease to be the spiritual God that he has been from eternity, but he begins now to express himself in this concrete way, and thus puts himself within the compass of our comprehension. Our finite minds cannot comprehend a spiritual God filling all eternity and all immensity. So he puts himself within the compass of our thought in order that he may make himself thinkable and approachable to us. He saw fit to give up his authority for the time. This position of authority without surrendering one whit of his attributes of deity in order that he might work out our redemption. And that is a quote by a guy named A.C. Dixon in a book, The Glories of the Cross. That book was written in the 60s, and to date, it's possibly one of my favorite books. It, it, it expounds on the cross in ways that make your heart come alive. So another quote says, Much more important, however, is the fact that not only in Genesis, but also in all the early books of Scripture, we find a distinction made between Jehovah and the angel of Jehovah, who himself is God, to whom all divine titles are given and divine worship is rendered. As, the God, is as God is called the Word, the Wisdom, the Son of God, his personality and divinity are clearly revealed. He is of old, even from everlasting, the mighty God, the Adonai, the Lord of David, Jehovah our righteousness, who was to be born of a virgin and bear the sins of many. And that is by a very famous systematic theologian, Charles Hodge. 
So here we see, again, just with more quotes, these, if you, if you look back through the history of the church, you will see pretty much every revivalist, doesn't matter the denominational affiliation, you will see every famous theologian, doesn't matter the country of origin, you will see all of them expounding on and glorying in the Trinity. So the belief that God is triune is almost completely universal across the body of Christ at large in every generation. So Ephesians 1, 4 through 7, it says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So again, as I said, he chose us in him. Who chooses us in who? It says the Father chose us in Jesus. Where, when did it take place? This is before the foundation of the world. Does this verse show different persons acting in different roles? So the Father is the one choosing and he is accomplishing this through the Son. We would expect, as, it, as we would expect, it is the Father who takes the leadership role in choosing us and sending the Son. We see this all throughout Scripture. And then through whose blood do we have redemption? As I said, the Father is not the one that has blood. So we are redeemed through Jesus and through his blood. Jesus took on a human nature, not the Father. We are reconciled back to the Father through the Son. So we are not reconciled to the Holy Spirit through the Father, right? So there's undeniable distinction of person and role all throughout the Scripture. So these are different roles performed by different persons of the Trinity. So John 1, 1 through 3, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, Nothing came into being that came that has come into being. We know the Father created all things, and we know that he created them through him. In other words, through Jesus. So Jesus existed before creation with the Father. So, And th this was the root of one of the heresies of the early church, where it was Arianism that said, that there was a time when Jesus was not. In other words, he's saying that God the Father created Jesus, and then Jesus created the world. And that is a heresy. So we see Jesus existing with the Father before creation. It says everything that was created was created through Jesus. So if Jesus was created, you couldn't say that everything was created through the guy who created it. Right? That wouldn't make sense. So the Father chose Jesus to be the one who created all things. All things were created in him and through him. And then John 1, 14 through 15, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. As we, have, as we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Have any of you noticed who is speaking this? John was six months older than Jesus. Not six months younger. John was older, as far as the natural body is concerned, John was older than Jesus. And yet John is saying that Jesus existed before him. This is yet another explicit declaration of the pre-existence of Jesus. And then, of course, there's other verses that says, Before Abraham was, I am. That would be another one that would point to Jesus' pre-existence. 
So this is key to belief in the Trinity. We believe Jesus is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and also distinct from the Father in personhood. And then Romans 8, 29, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of the Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Here we see it's the Father that is the one for, for who the Father is the one who foreknew and predestined us to be conformed into Jesus' image. This shows that the Father had predetermined that we would be conformed into the image of Jesus, who was alive and fellowshipping with the Father before creation. So the Father foreknew and predestined us to become conformed into the image of his Son. This foreknowledge happened prior to creation. So the Father was interacting with the Son. The, the Son is not a slave. The Son chose in agreement with the Father to be sent by him to save us. Again, we see distinction of person and role. And then John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The Father is the one who gave his Son. As I said, the, it's not the Son who gave the Father. You can't just flip it. If, if, if Jesus is the Father, if Jesus is Jesus, and if Jesus is the Holy Spirit, then you should be able to flip the terms and have it make sense. Right? But you can't. Nowhere in the Word does it say the Father sent the Holy Spirit to shed His blood, or that the Holy Spirit sent the Father, or that Jesus sent the Father. And the Father can't be a Father, nor can the Father give a Son that doesn't exist yet. Hear me. It says that God is a Father all throughout Scripture. God is also unchanging. So God the Father, that has been who He, who he has been for eternity past, you couldn't say that he was an, a father from eternity if he didn't have the son in eternity past. So the son pre-existed with the father. And the, and the father can't give a son that isn't created yet. So the father is giving... The Father is releasing the Son into the world to save us. If Jesus only existed from the moment of conception, then you can't have the Father giving that. He can't give something that's not in, it's not in existence yet. I can't give my wife a child that is not yet in her womb. So the eternal Father gave his Son, that was his Son from eternity past. In John 6, 37 through 40, All that the Father has given me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So we see here two distinct wills. Yes? Jesus is saying, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. That would be a deceptive statement if Jesus is the Father and Jesus is Jesus and Jesus is the Son. Because then Jesus would be saying that he has two different wills, but he's the same person. Right? So Jesus is saying, I am going to do a, the will of the Father who sent me. 
And if we think that maybe this verse is talking about Jesus as an earthly man and somehow not Jesus as fully God, then we need to pay close attention to the language in verse 38. Where is Jesus coming from? Where is Jesus coming from? He is coming down from heaven. The physical body of Jesus did not come down from heaven. How many of you know that? The physical body of Jesus did not come down from heaven. Where did it come from? Mary's womb. The physical body of Jesus came from Mary's womb. Jesus was born to a virgin as a baby who grew. But here we see it says Jesus came down from heaven. And what did he come down from heaven with? A separate will from the Father. He came down from heaven with, and he did not intend to exercise his own will, but he wanted to do, he wanted to do the will of the Father. So he's coming down, not as a physical man. He's coming down from heaven. So he existed in heaven prior to the incarnation. Like this is such a clear verse. Jesus existed prior to the incarnation. He had a separate will from the Father before the incarnation. He's coming down from heaven and saying that he's not going to exercise his own will. He's going to do the will of the Father who sent him. Jesus, the pre-existent God, who was with the Father in heaven, is the one who came down from heaven. And Jesus, having a separate will from the Father, chooses to obey and follow the leadership of the Father in becoming a man and dying for humanity. And then 1 John 4, 9 through 15 says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world. You can't send a son into the world without that son pre-existing. So that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. So minor bunny trail. No one has seen God at any time. And yet, in the Old Testament, we see verse after verse after verse saying that various men saw God. So the way to understand this is that no one has seen the Father. So all of in the Old Testament, as we see men explicitly saying they saw God, they were seeing the, the angel of the Lord which also was worshipped. The angel of the Lord was tied to the angel of the Lord. It, it um, had um, the attributes of God. So we understand the angel of the Lord to be what's called a Christophany, meaning a manifestation of Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus on the earth. In other words, Jesus took on the form of the angel of the Lord and physically manifested himself in the burning bush, and in other places, and I, it would take an entire additional class to talk about this subject. I literally don't have time, but it's a whole nother category when we're talking about Jesus's preexistence, because there's explicit verses that talk about that talk about the angel of the Lord, and then in the same verse, it'll switch terms and say God. But yet we have Old Testament and New Testament verses that say no one has seen the Father. But then we have these Old Testament passages that say the angel of the Lord, and then in the same passage it'll change the, change the reference point and say God. So we see God manifesting himself physically in the Old Testament. And we also have God that can't be seen. So we have God the Father and God the Son speaking and manifesting in the, in the Old Testament. All right, back to, the, back to the verse. No one has seen God at any time, verse 12. If we love one another, God abides in us. His love is perfected in us. 
By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Again, the thing that we are confessing is that Jesus is the Son of God. We are not confessing that Jesus is Jesus. We're confessing that Jesus is the Son of God, and that's a relational term. That's, that's saying Jesus is the Son of the Father. Again, that's Trinitarian, and that's relational. So we see the Father having his distinct role as the one who sends the Son, and we see this phrase, no one has seen the Father at any time, yet Jesus is God and walked the earth and these are the theophanies of the Old Testament, where the angel of the Lord, he both is and is not God. He is Jesus manifesting himself before his incarnation. So we also see the deity of the Holy Spirit, where it says God abides in us. So a very interesting phrase. It says God is abiding in us. And who is the one that's abiding in us? The Father is not abiding in you. So and just to clarify terms, like when we, when we grow up in Christianity and we're like, invite Jesus into your heart, and we're like, Jesus is in my heart, that's technically not where Jesus is, in case you wondered. Jesus still has a body, a resurrected body, and Jesus with his resurrected body is at the right hand of the Father right now. So it is not the Father who is in my heart, it is not Jesus who is in my heart, it is the Holy Spirit. That is his distinct role. The Holy Spirit is the deposit of God. He was given to us as a, as a down payment of our eternal inheritance to have fellowship with the fullness of the, tree, of the Trinity after our resurrection. So it's the Holy Spirit in us. The Holy Spirit is God. As, the, as this verse proclaims, it is God who is abiding in us. But it is God the Holy Spirit that is in us. That is what we feel. That is the, when we feel the manifestation of the presence of God. That is the Holy Spirit that is releasing. The Bible says the Holy Spirit is the one who's pouring out the love of the Father in our hearts. So again, the Holy Spirit has this distinction of role. The Holy Spirit is God, and the Holy Spirit is pouring out the love of the Father in our hearts. So verse 15 is also critical. We are not just called to confess Jesus as if we can say about him anything we want and be good. We are called to confess that Jesus is the Son of God, which proclaims both his deity and his relationship to the Father, which is distinct in role and person. So Galatians 4.4, 4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. The language of fullness of time before God sent the Son, indicates that there was time when God the Father was with God the Son, waiting for the right time for the Father to send the Son, again showing Jesus' preexistence with the Father and distinction in personhood. Hear me. It says, when the fullness of time came, God the Father sent his Son. When the fullness of time came. In other words, there was time, there was waiting before God the Father sent the Son. I can't wait to send something that doesn't exist yet. I wouldn't use that language. So God the Son is with God the Father, and they are waiting for the appointed time for him to be revealed and manifested in the earth. All right, Hebrews 1.1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So it's the Father appointing Jesus as heir, and it's the Father who, th through, who through Jesus made the world. Verse 3, he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power, when he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much better than the angels, he has inherited a more excellent name than they. 
For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. When he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire? But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. I'll read that again, verse 8. But of the Son, the Father is saying, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Again, it wouldn't make sense if Jesus is the Father, and Jesus is Jesus, and Jesus is the Holy Spirit. This would, he would be saying that my throne is my throne, and I'm God. So that would be deceptive language. The whole revelation that God is giving us is God the Father is saying of God the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And he's sitting where? At the right hand of the Father. So you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore God, your God. He's not saying, God, me. Right? He's saying, God, your God, has anointed you. It doesn't say, I am God and I anointed myself. With the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. So who's laying the foundation of the earth? Jesus. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they all will become old like a garment. And like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed. For you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Again, talking about Jesus. You are the same, and your years will not come to an end. So talking about the, how Jesus is eternal, and he's not changing. He took on flesh, but he's not changing in his, in his essence, in his personhood. But to which of, verse 13, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? For this reason, this is verse 1 of the next chapter. This is, if you, if, uh, this should have been in the same chapter. How many of you know that the chapter and verse markings were not in the original manuscripts? The original manuscripts didn't even have vowels. They didn't have spaces between words. They didn't have vowels. They didn't have punctuation. They didn't have chapter headings. They didn't have verse numbers. So just FYI. So here we see this continual flow of thought. It says, for this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we don't drift away from it. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we must, so that we do not drift away from it. And what is it that he's talking about? Go through and read that, go through and read those verses again. He's talking about the Father appointing the heir, Jesus. He's talking about Jesus making the world, the angels of God worshiping Jesus, Jesus being called God. He's talking about Jesus being, being anointed by the Father, Jesus laying the foundation of the earth. It's talking about Jesus being the same, his years not coming to an end. So it's this reality that's saying, pay close attention to what you have heard so that you don't drift away. So this, the identity of Jesus and his relation to the Father and his eternal preexistence is the very thing we're supposed to pay close attention to so that we don't drift away from it. Amen. So I didn't have time to read this, but at the end of the notes, this was also in last notes, is the Athanasian Creed. And if you want to see a succinct encapsulation, again, just a reiteration of what we believe as the deity of the Son, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus, and their distinction in person, it is um, expounded on uh, quite well in the Athanasian Creed. So Jesus, we thank you, God, for your word. Lord, we pray that we would continue to meditate on it, Lord, that we would receive life from your word. We believe your word is living and active. God, we pray that it would 
touch our hearts, God, not just theoretically or not just theologically, God, but we pray that the reality of who you are would transform us from the inside out. God, we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe, God, you've given us that deposit, God, that promise of the Holy Spirit so that we can be transformed into your image. So, God, we cry out, transform us from the inside out, God. Root out, Lord, every every thing in us that is in opposition to your will and your nature. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us this week. Until next time, 